What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right, I'm here with Rob Walling, the creator of Tiny Seed, the startup accelerator designed for bootstrappers, and the creator of MicroConf. How's it going, Rob? Pretty good, man. It's good to be back on the show. We're here on Riverside recording this, where they are the primary competitors to your portfolio company, Squadcast, who I also used and love. I almost rejected your calendar invite and said, I'm sorry, <laughs> here's my Squadcast link, let's record it. I could have booted up my Squadcast account and recorded it with that. It's all uh, it's all on Stripe's time, so like whatever, I'll pay for two, <laughs> I'll pay for two, two podcast recording tools. I haven't used Riverside yet, so this is a treat to be able to, you know, because I have, we used to use Zencaster for Startups for the Rest of Us, and then it's obviously switched to Squadcast, and so this is my first experience with Riverside. Yeah, well, this is it. You get to spy on the competition, feed uh, whatever learnings you get back to the Squadcast guys. <laughs> what are you using for your podcast? I assume Squadcast. Are you doing video? Yep. Or are you doing... Doing a little bit of video, just toying with it, actually, over the past few weeks. And, and so I hired an assistant producer named Aaron, and he's... I love it. He's got the get up and go. You know, he's just like, let's try this. Let's try that. And I'm like the old guy now. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, is this really worth the time? Is it really worth it? But, but it's cool because he's spurring me on to like experiment with things. So instead of just recording audio now, since Squadcast supports video native, I've been recording like the first five to 10 minutes of an interview or a conversation in video and then just switching to audio. Because I see, I like audio only. And we've had good luck with it with uh, MicroConf already. I think we have... 300-ish videos. We went from zero subscribers a year ago to 7,500 now. And it's been a mix of promoting to our audience, you know, like emailing, hey, new videos up, and then just this organic reach. And I'll admit, I had always heard YouTube is the second largest search engine compared to Google, but it didn't sink into me just the sheer volume of yeah right yeah. But it, and it, and this is one of those things where it's that investment and it's asymmetric risk of like uh, we're going to pay Aaron every week to create more of these and how many clips can we get out of it and we're going to get nothing back for probably months and then we'll get one hit and for microconf the one that flipped us was uh, the Jason Cohen designing the ideal bootstrap business talk from 2012 I believe and that got on Hacker News. And I think like Patio 11 tweeted it and just a bunch of stuff happened. And, and that went to tens of thousands of views overnight. And that got a bunch of subscribers to the Microcom channel. And once you get there, it's a signal to YouTube that you should start ranking for other things. And that's, I think, what I'm going to try with Startups of the Rest of Us is when can we get to that point where we get that flip and the channel becomes, uh, I'm making this up like I didn't, I just imagining there's a domain, you know, there's domain authority. It's like, there has yeah. to be channel authority in their algorithm. For sure. For sure. And it's like, so. they've got the search engine, which is one way to be found. Then they've got the recommended videos. So you end a video, they pop up other videos, there's videos in the sidebar. It's just super good for discovery. And people will just be like, that looks interesting. Click versus yeah. like a podcast player. I don't know. Podcast discovery seems really terrible. And maybe it's a problem that no one cares about except for <laughs> podcast hosts. <laughs> like we wish it was easy to discover. <laughs> yeah, me <laughs> totally. too. Like, but uh, I think one of the cool things about YouTube is that, um, essentially, even if you don't necessarily have a channel, you can go to other people's channels and like sort of collaborate. So I experimented with this last year as well. For example, I went on this guy, uh, his name is Will Kwan. I, I noticed people coming to Andy Hackers were kind of like referencing, oh yeah, I heard about you on Will Kwan's channel. I'm like, okay, I don't know who this guy is, let me check. And he had a couple of videos where he just like mentioned Andy Hackers. So I emailed him and I was like, hey, can I come on? You know, maybe we'll do a collaborative video. And he just interviewed me 
when like his videos got 25,000 views. And now like, you know, some single digit percentage of people who sign up for indie hackers say, oh, it's because I saw this video on Will Kwan's channel. So you could also do the circuit on people who already have like hundreds of thousands of subscribers who talk about sort of tangential things, sort of influencer marketing via YouTube rather than just doing kind of the podcast circuit. Oh my gosh, that dude, that you just made this whole recording worth it for me because, you know, for years I've been like, I came up with this, it's not a terribly clever name, but podcast tour, like, cause I did it for Hit Tail and I did it for Drip and it was like, I'm not going to do a book tour. I'm going to do a podcast tour. And so I'd make this big list. I'd email everyone I knew and a bunch of people who I didn't know. And I would go on every podcast, you know, I just blanket the earth, right? Trying to talk about again, Hit Tail, Drip, whatever, MicroConf, Tiny Seed. But I had never considered, of course, it's just a simple copy paste, like to do that on YouTube. Now, I don't have much of a network on YouTube, but that is a really good idea. I think it's underrated. People just don't think about like this, the prototypical podcast is an interview. And so everyone's like, oh, I should pitch myself to be interviewed, you know, but like on uh, this guy's channel, Will Kwan's channel, like he's not doing interviews. He's like making these like highly edited, cool videos, you know, but, like the fact that he just snuck an interview in there is like super easy content for him, super easy for me. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it's underrated. People should try it out. I have actually purchased ads in Overcast, and you can go to or overcast.fm slash ads to kind of oh, see cool. their rates. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I heard about it from Craig Hewitt, right, who runs Castos and is tied into all that. I've purchased ads in a couple other players, but it didn't it didn't work. Overcast, I saw new subscribers increase. The cost eventually got, much like AdWords and Facebook ads before them, the cost became you know, not uh, cost prohibitive, basically. I think originally when I did it, it was like maybe a dollar per new podcast subscriber, which sounds outrageous, but it was still like cool. I think it's like four bucks per now. And it's like, I just can't, I just can't, not for free. <laughs> it's not worth it unless you're no. making a ton of money after podcasts, which you probably aren't. I don't know very many people who are, but uh, yeah, podcast growth is such a, it's very different than every other channel. Like I'm starting a podcast with my buddy Julian and like just thinking about podcast growth, well, growth for almost any sort of app is basically like user acquisition and like retention. Like those are the two biggest numbers that matter. And if you're sort of leaking users and like that's really the first thing you need to plug. So if you imagine like a blog, like James Clear's blog, he's got a ton of traffic to his blog. Almost all of that comes in through SEO, which means his retention is basically zero. Like every reader probably doesn't come back, probably isn't like routinely going to jamesclear.com. Podcasts are almost the exact opposite where all the big shows that I'm aware of like have extremely high retention numbers. People just listen because they like the hosts and they kind of want to check in with the hosts. And like most of the best podcasts, if you listen to their intros, it's kind of the host is kind of like shooting the shit with each other, just saying almost nothing. And you kind of get into it because you're like, oh, I like these people, you know, I want to hear what they're up to. And so podcasts are all about retention and acquisition is much harder because like there aren't really great channels for acquiring like listeners. Like there's YouTube, there's ads, there's kind of the podcast tour. Like the best thing to do is advertise your podcast on other podcasts. But like, that's it. And it's really hard to measure. Like the tools suck. I think Apple just now revamped like their tools right now. So you can kind of like go in and see like really detailed metrics and stuff. But like, it's been like 20 years and they're just now adding tools for you to like see this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a big opportunity for people who want to take podcasting seriously to really dive into like the, the strategies and think of, think about like what makes a show retentive. You know, for any hackers, for example, a lot of people will get bored listening to the same stories over and over. Like I've heard, you know, 35 stories of a founder <laughs> succeeding. That's good enough, you know? And so they sort of graduate. And it's like, ah, it's not that retentive, you know? Whereas, for example, the All In podcast with Jason Calacanis and Jamath, like that's all news. And so they just talk about like what's going on and the headlines this week. And like, that's never something that you turn from. You always kind of like want to know what's going on in the world. 
And there's a trade-off there too, right? Because I would never go back, because I listen to All In as well. I would never go back and listen to the old episodes because they're out of date now. But I would, if I found Indie Hackers, if I found Startups for the Rest of Us, the back catalog is amazing. So I, I'm sure you get these emails, but I get the emails or the tweets. I just went back and listened to 200 episodes of your show. And I'm always like, I'm sorry, but but that like sucks people in. Then they're like, I'm in, much to your, your point of they love the hosts. They want to follow the story. They want to hear your thoughts on XYZ topic. And so that's the trade-off, right? Maybe the ideal is a combo then. Topical educational episodes that people are always going to find valuable. And then like some sort of like current events, news, like discussion, uh, which you do on your show as well. Or you're talking about Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces that kind of like, you know, is always relevant that people are talking about that they're going to share. And that was a big shift about, well, it was about two years ago now where my former co-host, Mike Tabor, took a step back to focus on, you know, on his stuff. And I had to figure out, I don't want this to be an interview show. You know, I, there are already really good interview shows like Indie Hackers and, you know, there's Mixergy, there's all, there's all the other ones. And I was trying to figure out that balance. And over months of experimentation, I kept hearing the feedback because I was, so I'm an engineer, right? And I was trying to figure out what's the formula. And I was like, every four weeks, I'm going to do a Q&A. And every four weeks, I'm going to do this. And every six weeks, I'm going to do a news roundtable, startup news thing. And I talked to people and they said, I don't care. Like, I, that's all I kept hearing is, I don't care. Just don't make it the same every time. You know, there's Rob, there's Rob solo episodes there, you know, it's just, blah, blah, blah. and I keep coming up with new formats and I'm willing to try it now because people say the variety, the fact that I, every Tuesday morning, I open it and I don't know what to expect. I actually like. I've had no one who said, oh, it, there's too much variety or I don't know what to expect or I only like this type of show, right? So that's been motivation for me to start thinking. I had never thought of recording a solo episode before that, but now I have like these 20 minute episodes where it's just me talking, almost like I would normally have done in a blog post if I had more time to write it, but I'm now giving, it's like, a, here's a mental framework I'm thinking of, right? Or here's what I see succeeding with SaaS today, or here's a common question. I get a, the same question four times in two months. I'm like, I'm going to record a segment that, that's just, here's the advice I'm giving. That's cool. How much do you prep for that? Like, do you write out basically a blog post and then sort of read it? Or do you just kind of think about a topic and just go? Bullets, just bullets. I think about a topic. I make, I actually sent you kind of some outline loose thoughts. I mean, that's yeah. about, that's even more outlined than I normally would, where it's just three bullets and I talk and sometimes it winds up, the editor edits it, it comes back and I'm like, ugh, it was rough. <laughs> you know, this rough. But my editor is also getting pretty good at peeling, I'll say, pull that entire paragraph. You know, that, that whole story that augmented that didn't work, but yeah. definitely getting better at it. The first time you do it is very hard. And then, you know, subsequent times you get better at it. Yeah, maybe I should do that because it's like the, it's the least guest dependent because there is no guest. So you can do it whenever you want. You can always like, you know, oh, I'm missing an episode. Just like sit down, record something. I'm curious, is your editor the same as your producer? You mentioned you had like a, a new producer who's like sort of pushing you forward. Same person? Different. Different. Two people, yeah. I've had, I've had the same editor for six, seven years now. And if productized services like, you know, Castos Productions right. and, you know, where you can pay X hundred dollars a month and have it done. If they had existed back when we hired him, we would have used them. But realistically, we went to Upwork and, and found someone. I do like having the tweakability. I mean, I, I probably couldn't work with productized services because I'm just too picky. Y'all go in and be like, I'm going to slice this. I need this whole thing rerouted. So yeah, I think the way to go is you want to like uh, an actual particular editor who you are on a first name basis with who knows your preferences, because then they get like, they're like a, like a, a productized service that improves over time, you know, like they get to know you and they get to know your style, etc. Whereas like, if you're using one of those companies, like you don't even know who's editing your show, and you gotta give them like the same notes that you gave them last year, because they switched out people, you're just like, it's not that good. So I think you really want to yeah. have like just one person. 
It has worked for me. He is super reliable. He gets it done on time and he never takes time off almost ever. Or when he does, he's like, I'm going to be off next week. And I'm like, cool, I'll get you two episodes this week, which happens like once every two years. That's the danger if you do go with an individual is that they get sick, is that anything happens, right? You have a single point of failure. So I do like the idea of productized services if you're not as picky as you and I, basically. Like if, if this was even more of a side project, it, it just takes all the headache away. I was talking to uh, Sam Parr, who's one of the hosts of the My First Million podcast. And I was asking him, I was like, hey, where did you get your uh, intro music for your show? It's great. It kind of sounds like an actual song, whereas like most podcasts, like we pull it off like these uh, royalty-free, you know, music sites and they all kind of sound the same. And he's like, I don't know. To be honest, I don't even know what it sounds like. I'm like, well, have you listened to your show? He's like, never. <laughs> I'm like, what? He's like, not a single time have I ever gone back and listened to a single episode of my show. And they're like a hundred and something episodes in, which is crazy. I can't imagine doing that, but I'm also jealous of the freedom that he has to just crank out episodes and just not care. And the download numbers are pretty astonishing, so it's working. Wow. Yeah, I couldn't do that because I'm too much into the iteration. I listen to the episodes to, f to nitpick myself yep. and figure out how can this be better? How wh What should I have cut? What question? I mean, all the time I'll be listening to an interview and I'm like, why did I not ask them this? Was I not paying attention? <laughs> like, it's so obvious to me. I think that's probably a signal I've gotten better because I used to not be a very good interviewer and I think I'm getting better. And now when I go back, it's like, oh, kind of cringeworthy naturally in conversation, I'm a very affirming person. I do a lot of nodding. I'm, you know, if, if we talk and you say stuff, I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, that totally, yep, totally, Cortland. You know, that's, I mean, you and I have had dinner, you know how I talk. I can't do that in interviews because it's, I have to cut it all out. And so it's almost a, an unnatural cadence of conversation because in an interview, it's distracting if I'm sitting there affirming the, the interviewee. And you'll notice that I, you and I both do this, I think now where it's, they'll finish talking, you say nothing, and then you say the next question. So tell me about your childhood, you know, and it's, it feels weird. Cause if, again, if we were at dinner and I did that, you'd be like, it's not how you talk at all, but it sounds natural in an, in an interview. Right. It's one of the things that I've been trying to change a little bit more in my interviews. Just listening to some of the other shows that I like a lot. They're a lot more conversational. They're not interview shows, but it's like, ah, I kind of like yeah. the cadence and the market difference is like, there just aren't that many questions. You know, the questions are a little yeah. bit more authentic, but it's mostly just like, two people monologuing at each other, just making statements and then riffing off the other statement and then just riffing off that one. Yeah, the key with that format I've found is you have to have someone who is good on the mic who has experience. Like if you get someone on and it's their first time, it's not going to work because they're not going to bounce back and forth. They don't know how to fill air in an effective way, right? Because I used to, back in the day, 500 episodes ago, I filled air in kind of a dumb way, right? I had notes and things weren't that interesting. But you and I have done enough episodes now, you know, just like you had Ben Ornstein on a couple of weeks ago. I heard that and it was like, both of you are like pros, right? And I could I can have Derek Reimer on. I can, you can have a... Uh, Craig Hewitt from Castos, you know, any of these folks who it can be just a back and forth. That's where you hear an, an all in, right? It's like there's one or two really veteran podcasters. A couple of the other guys don't talk that much and you can tell they're kind of, you know, pulling them along and, and the show. The best podcast guest is a podcast host. 100% of the time it goes well. That's the, So that's the other funny thing. Have you been invited on a show with kind of a new interviewer? Yes. Like someone who's in their first 10 or 20 episodes? A bunch of times. The whole time you're like... I'm just going to eat, you know, you're, you're like guiding uh -huh. them and you're, you're not actually answering the question they ask because it's not a very good question, <laughs> but you're trying to help the show be better. Yeah. Cause you want the episodes you're on, you're on to like sound good. The hardest thing for me is like, I don't want to go on somebody's podcast and then not tweet about it. I feel bad, yeah. <laughs> but if it's a <laughs> shitty episode, I'm just like, uh, I'm not going to do uh, this. Yeah. So I have literally inserted, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the question and then be like, and I have some other thoughts on this tangent, like, because I know it's like, this really needs to yeah. be here, but they're not going to ask the follow-up, you know? You were uh, actually tweeting about 
I guess you said it. I'm considering creating an alphabetical index of the myriad topics that you've discussed on your podcast over the years, which is related to what we were talking about, how people will go through the backlog. And I've thought about this a ton too. I'm curious what your goals are. Like why do that? What would it look like? I was inspired by a podcast that I've listened to for several years titled Money for the Rest of Us. And in fact, he and I, it's really good. It's the one personal finance podcast I still listen to. I contacted him. He started in 2014, I believe. And I contacted him and I was like, hey, I'm with Startup for the Rest of Us. And he said, sorry about the name. I didn't realize you were already out there. But it turns out, you know, he's really good and I listen to it. So he's creating an index and it's almost like a, the index at the back of a book where it's a alphabetical. So you go A and it's just a bunch of topics, you know, aardvarks and, uh, you know, sales funnels, that would be under S, but whatever, you know, you get all the, all the topics and you can click through and it has the episode. Now, the thing I'm struggling with there, so I can have assistant producer Aaron go do that. He could spend a few weeks and he can index it. The thing I'm struggling with is, so what does that take you to? Does it take you to the transcript and you don't have to search? Does it take you to a certain point of the transcript? Does it try to take you to a certain point in the audio or an audio clip? Cause that's going to be a disaster, right? I, I can't invest the time to do that's that. That's a ton yet. of time. So that's where I'm kind of iffy about it is like, would people use it? And so I did, I I guess I asked online of what format would you like to see? I didn't ask online if people would use it, but I do know that we get a lot of searches on startups for the rest of us because we have full transcripts of everything. So you can literally go and type in sales funnels or email marketing or the name of a guest and you get all their episodes. So I know that that's used and I use it myself. What I'm not sure is would people use an index, you know, but I think the idea of an index is that you don't have to think of the search term. It's basically you can kind of skim through it and, and be like, oh, I'd actually love to hear Rob's or guests, Mike's take, you know, on this topic. That would be the benefit. What, what do you think? Do you think people would use it? I mean, would you use it? Yeah, not on my show, just any show. There are, um, there are like some of these indexes out there, like, you know, First Round Capital, they have like search.firstround.com which is an amazing resource. They're just like, let's take every topic related to startups, fundraising, uh, marketing, product design. There's like a hundred topics. And then they're just like, let's get the best blog post on the web about that topic. And we'll just like, you know, have all of them in a list. So you can go there at any point in time, just like figure out anything. And it's like, that must have taken so much work to build. So much effort went into that. It's so useful. And like, I never use it. <laughs> I know it's there. I know it could solve my problems. And I, I wonder why sometimes, and I think it's because when I encounter like a startup problem, like my first thought isn't go to this database. It's like, let me talk to a friend or let me talk to my brother or let me like ask like a mentor or let me like search Google or let me just sit down and like figure it out myself. Half the time, like that's my resource. And so I'm somewhat skeptical about indexes. It's why I haven't built one for indie hackers because I'm like, well, I just never use them. But I think people would use them. Some people for sure would. You know, if the homepage of indie hackers was like, gigantic directory of startup topics for help like people would probably use it and so i'm conflicted i think i am too and for me it's like okay so it's a hypothesis what do you do to test it well i can ask on twitter would you use an index and i'm dubious about whatever 80 percent will say yes no one will use it right or the opposite so what i was trying to do was talking to again assistant producer aaron and, and saying what's the minimum what's the mvp of this you know could we just get a through d index or could we maybe just get 50 episodes indexed and you click through and it takes you to the transcript and you can listen to the episode if you want. So then we could see, do people use it? And if no one does, we're out, what, hundred, hundreds of dollars in labor or whatever it is. The exception and the reason I think that maybe some people would use it is on Twitter, I often will get a 
I'll get a question or on Indie Hackers, I'll respond to something or whatever. Hacker News, just any of these forums where someone asks a question about being acquired or sales funnels or email marketing or whatever. And I will say, we t I talked about this for 40 minutes in this episode. Yeah, this whole idea of sort of content reuses, I think criminally underutilized in podcasts because I've been thinking about this with indie hackers for example if we wanted to do like an indie hackers book list like let's you know talk about the books that all indie hackers like the most every single time I have a podcast episode after I finish recording I can say hey Rob like what are some books that have been influential to you record that and it's like you know an extra like minute or two for you it's not going to matter but by this point I would have like 200 you know different people who told me their favorite books or their favorite resources or their favorite whatever and i could easily like you know ship that off to a va to put together a resource somewhere else and it's so easy to do that but like i haven't really used that part of my playbook very much i know i know and i think not being strategic and playing you and i what we're saying is we kind of play checkers instead of playing chess and i think that's a bit of a mistake or or it's a mistake maybe it's a strong word but I'll tell you what, I regret it. I regret having done this podcast, Startups for Rest West for 11 years now and not having been more strategic about it and not having spent more time. And I, what I don't regret is the last two years because I have I have doubled down on all types of stuff, redesigned the website, changed the hosting, whatever. It got different analytics. I was going to say better analytics, but I don't know about you, man. Podcast analytics suck. And I used three different analytics providers and they gave me wildly different numbers, like 100% different from one to the next. And I'm just like, I don't know how many listeners we have. I can give you an idea, yeah. but I don't know for sure, you know? Are you on Chartable? Yeah, Chartable is the one. Does it tell you listener count? Chartable attempts to basically aggregate your metrics from like every podcast player. And so, like, all of your MP3 links on your um, podcast feed will go through like a Chartable link. And they use like, what do they call it? Like the IABV2 certified statistics, um, which like requires them to like just do a bunch of stuff to try to give you the most accurate download counts. So they need to filter out bot traffic. They need to filter out like repeat plays on the same IP address. And like, as far as I'm aware, like <laughs> podcasters, it's like, it's the wild west. Like I was on um, This Week in Startups with Jason Kalkanis. And I was like, how many downloads are you getting? He's like, oh yeah, like, a couple hundred thousand per episode. I was like, really? Uh, who's your hosting provider? He's like, oh, we just throw our MP3s on in an Amazon S3 bucket and we just count the number of downloads. I'm like, that's not accurate at all. <laughs> that's like the least accurate possible way to do it. Uh, and so his numbers are probably inflated like 5, 10x at least. So like, who knows, right? He, he might tell advertisers that's what they get and they might be able to charge based on those rates and nobody really knows. Right, and that's the thing. So no, I haven't, I obviously I'm not unchartable because I had thought I'd heard of it and I'm using a service that tells me where we are in the Apple podcast charts. It tells me where I rank because I care about that um, for discovery. It's a good time to be podcasting. It's one of those like mediums that if you invested in 10 years ago, which you basically did, uh, it's a risk. You know, it's just going to be around. And like, obviously, it's bigger than ever. It's humongous. Apple's getting into it uh, more than they ever have. Spotify's getting into it more than they ever have. Google's got their podcast player. Let's talk about some other trends. I saw you tweeting about your Oculus Quest. Uh, VR. VR is near and dear to my heart because I've been so bullish on VR for so many years and it has not taken off. It has not become anywhere near what I would hope it would be. And I just got an Oculus Quest, I think in January, and I was super excited. It's the Oculus Quest 2. Is that the one you have? Yeah. And it's $300. And then if if you are going to use it with multiple people, because I have there's four of us in the family, right? With two kids. And you get the little head headband. I think it's 50 bucks that's adjustable so everyone can use it. But if you're even more baller, you spend 150 and you get the one with the battery pack that attaches to it to give you extra battery life. My kids love it and we will attach Beat Saber or something else to actually 
crank it up to, to experts so they get some type of exercise in the winter because they can do it and, you know, they enjoy it, but they also move around a bunch. Yeah, I've been playing through what's the, there's a Star Wars Darth Vader thing, you know, we're in the second part of that trilogy. It's so, I mean, you're not attached to anything. You just buy an app on your phone and it's 15 to $30 usually. And then suddenly it's just in your headset. And and I'm kind of becoming the, I'm, I'm an old guy now, you know, I'm not that old, but like, I don't like new things. It's like, ah, get off my lawn. And I put this thing on the first time and I was like, this is unbelievable. Like th- VR has arrived with this thing because you're not attached to any, there's no wires, right? It's just, that's the amazing thing. And the graphics aren't, they're not like the, the Rift, you know, or not like, I mean, there are other VR headsets that are so much better, but it has not slowed down for me. I'm bullish now. I've always been bullish on all new stuff because I'm a technologist, right? And I want this stuff to work, but I've been really disappointed with the VR headsets and the cost. And it's like, I'm not going to get a big Windows machine and attach it to it. But I think VR and AR are arriving like as we speak. Yeah. I've been hoping that they would. And I got the quest, and I, unlike you, I have not continued to use it. It's like in a drawer over there. Oh, interesting. Uh, and it's like, huh. I'm just so excited about it. Like, I want it to be great. And the experience actually is pretty great. Like, the first time I put on my headset, you can kind of choose like your home environment, what's your background gonna be. And like, I chose this like cool cave in a canyon with like a living room and like stone tables and stuff. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And then like the apps for me, it's just mostly games. And I like games just as much as the next person. But like, I'm thinking like, okay, I wanna be like, you know, floating in space with like 10 monitors around me and like managing like indie hackers and my Twitter account and everything, right? I want like just the coolest VR experience possible. And for me, the like, apps just aren't there. Like I can't be productive in VR. Like it's not better for me. Like it's better for me to chat to my friends on my phone than it is to chat in a VR environment, which is crazy. If you read any sort of like sci-fi book about VR, like they've got all the coolest apps, like everything makes way more sense because it's an entire digital world created from the ground up. So I'm bullish on it. But I think the apps aren't there. Like, there is no Twitter for VR. You know, there is no Asana for VR. There is no Gmail for VR. And so you just kind of, like, end up playing a lot of games. I would agree with that. I think that the the fidelity of paint uh, writing or typing or anything, is it's not there yet. And, in fact, there's a whiteboard app. Because this was a big thing, like, when Derek and I were building Drip is when we were separated for any length of time it's like we can't whiteboard together this is really hard because he and i would sit in front of whiteboard for three hours you know and just like hash out really hard problems and i kept saying once vr once we can vr headset into a whiteboard we never need to see each other again and and there is a whiteboard app and the fidelity is too low you can't when you write it's you're like writing with a big crayon because it it's the detection it's not there but it it'll get there right it has to it has to get there and once it gets there it'll i think it'll be game changing i agree with you i want it i want to be able to work in it but what i will say is that when covid hit and we couldn't do even the tiny seed group uh tiny seed microconf right it's four of us we wanted to get together in person to hang out, do a one or two day hangout time. Instead, we did it in VR and we did a few games that are that are cooperative games. Like there's one layer preparing food, right? And you're chop, chop, chop. And then you like hand the sandwich to the person next to you. And they're supposed to put the cheese and the thing on and the customers are all huffy if you do it wrong. And so we were gaming, but also hanging out and talking in between. And we were chatting and it was a way for us not, because the four of us will sit on a Zoom call and it's like, well, this is great. <laughs> you know, it's like, Let's do more work. I feel like I'm working right now, but at least then we could, Elven Assassin's another one, right? Where you're like shooting, yep. you know, orcs from far away or Oh, whatever. that's smart. So that was, yeah. 
that was nice. It was like team evening team retreats, you know, each of us having a frosty yep. adult beverage and hang out. So I think that's been like a, that. a valuable yeah. thing. I can't imagine like if you wanted to like craft an experience from the ground up to just make people feel like they're in some sort of corporate work environment while talking, like you would make it look exactly like Zoom. Just everything is ugly. Everything is Spartan. Yeah. <laughs> it's just completely totally. stripped down. Like they are aggressively trying to bore the hell out of you. But uh, I'm a fan of multitasking. Like my brother and I will do calls pretty much every day. And we usually just use Telegram because we'll be typing in Telegram. You click like one button, then you're on a call. It's just the lowest friction. But like, I, it's hard for me to just sit there and talk and do nothing else. Like even right now, I'm like animated and like moving my hands and stuff. So like with him, like we're both like pacing around our apartments and then half the time we're zoning out because we're like trying to multitask and do other things while we're talking. But if I was like playing some cool VR game at the same time, like that would be super interesting. And the reason it doesn't happen for me is because like the friction to get like go get my VR headset, make sure it's charged, put it on is too high. But if I had these other productivity apps where I was kind of like there all day, like I'm going to stare at a screen all day, it might as well be a VR screen, then it wouldn't be high friction because I'd already have the headset on and just press the button. Now I'm in like a chat. No, I think that I think the friction piece is a, is a big part of it. Interesting tidbit that I'll throw in it, tangentially related, you were saying, because I'm the same way where I need to be moving around or I like to move my hands, I like to talk. I have switched my, my, my I use SavvyCal instead of Calendly. SavvyCal is a, a tiny feedback company. I've switched my SavvyCal link now to where it does not default to Zoom. It defaults to enter your phone number and I will call you because I'm just kind of done because I can walk. I can go, I live near a lake and like it's 65 and sunny out today. And I want to, I've been walking almost every day for just an hour, not even as exercise. Cause I do other stuff harder. You know, walking is not exercise for me, right? I'm just in decent enough shape, but I just want to be outside and not sit in front of a damn computer for eight hours a day and not stare at the screen. Right. So I'm going a little analog. It's an experiment. I'm only about a week into it so far. It's been amazing and I have no qualms about it. Obviously there are some that need to be zoom because you're going to share screens. You're going to do Excel. You're going to walk through Google sheets or whatever um there's also these uh, a lot of these companies out there that are trying to make these like team meetings better gather gather.town which is the coolest i think it's like just so fun to uh, you have like a little virtual world and you have a little character you move them around and you know when your character's next to somebody else's character then it connects you in an audio chat so it's almost like you're you know a real experience and there's a bunch of other like, competitors to this that are trying to basically capitalize on the fact that everybody's working remote but zoom is super boring super dry and just isn't engaging yeah, for sure. So we used them for MicroConf Remote about a month ago. And to your point, it's like an 8-bit version or 16-bit version of uh, like Zelda or an old King's Quest game. And people were blown away. Most people. Now, we had some curmudgeons who were like, this is super, you know, f like a fad, right? Or this is too kitschy, like for a professional conference, but only a handful. And overwhelmingly, aside from the, you know, those few people, people loved it because it was, it does kind of almost a little bit replicate the hallway track. It's my favorite thing about like the sort of COVID ecosystem apps. And maybe like two years ago, it was like, you know, pushing it forward to even have video chats at your company. You know, like people just didn't do it. The adoption rate was super low. Most people were working from the office. And then with COVID, it's like, okay, well now everybody's on Zoom. So like we can think about what the next level is and it's gather and it's uh, all these other tools that just look cool or like a little bit more fun. You know, now we have like Clubhouse and we have Twitter Spaces. We're like, what if we have audio only? And like the fact that like remote conversations has just been so mainstreamed now means that people can just push the envelope and try new things. And so I think that's what's kind of fun. You know, like the idea that you can build an app that looks like a video game and real companies are using it. Like that would be unheard of two years ago. But like now it's like, yeah, fine, let's try it. You know, or like a lot of people building like these icebreaker apps where they're like, hey, 
companies are all remote right now. Their employees don't know each other. I don't get to talk to each other. Like, what if we put like a goat on your Zoom <laughs> on your Zoom video and you could like talk to this goat, you know? Or what if we like, you know, design like these sort of like cool icebreakers? And people are making real money doing this kind of stuff where, you know, it's just in the past not a viable business. Yeah, it's picks and shovels, right? It's you build the, you know, if you're in the gold rush, do you want to be the miner or do you want to, or prospector, do you want to sell picks and shovels? And that I viewed SaaS as picks and shovels forever, right? Since 15 years ago when I started talking about it. And that's really the bet that we're making with Tiny Seed is that, you know, when we get, we get more, we don't get more applicants, we get more applicants with revenue every batch we've done so far. And even more revenue than, you know, batch one and batch two had more revenue and batch three had more revenue than batch two. And so there is this trend of more people using SaaS today than a year ago. And are those going to go, you know, are those users going to suddenly go away? Are those needs going to go away? I think we see the same thing with uh, the funding environment where from where I sit, it seems like there's so much money looking to go into startups right now. Like everyone is investing in every startup they can. Riverside just announced, like I think on their homepage right now, it's like they just raised nine and a half million dollars and there's some crazy valuation. And it's like every startup is just like, yeah, worth a hundred million dollars now. And like two years ago, that was not the case. I mean, funding wasn't bad, but it wasn't as easy as it is now. And I think with Tiny Seed, you just finished your, your second fund and you raised, how much did you raise? Wound up being 27.7 million. That's crazy. Like that's an insane amount of money. It is. Our first one was four and a, four and a half or 4.4. And I remember when we first started raising the first one, I told my co-founder Anar, I was like, I think if we can raise like a couple million dollars to do a batch, like I'll be great. And we got to four and a half and I was like, this is amazing. And now here we are, you know, five, six times the size. There, there, money's cheap right now and it won't be forever. So that's the thing. I've been through booms and busts and a lot of folks, like if, if you've only been a professional for 10 years, you don't remember 2008, 2009, and you don't remember the dot-com crash, right, of 2000. And you don't have to remember them to, to take this advice. Like in 2000, it felt like money was free and it was being sent to, I mean, people with the business plan were just getting all this money to do whatever, right? And then it eventually crashed. And from from that crash rose Google and I think Facebook was a few years later, but Blogspot and Blogger and YouTube came out of that a few years later. And and then SaaS came out of that in 2005 to 2010. And then there was a big crash. And there, again, there was a bunch of money, bunch of money because it was cheap because the Fed was printing it and you could borrow at historic lows and then crash 2008, 2009. Now, the places that didn't crash is like if you're bootstrapping and you're super cash efficient, you might see a few rough months or you might even see six rough months. But if you're not just burning through cash, like you'll stay alive and you come out way stronger on the other side of that, right? And you can slingshot and it's good to have, it's good to have that wind at your back. And you're right. Money is cheap right now. Don't think it will be forever. And, and I do, are we in a bubble? Eh, I mean, kind of, we're kind of, we go through cycles, you know, and if you think about it, the last bust was 13 years ago now. I mean, we really haven't had a major, you know, we had the obviously last March during COVID, there was a one month crash. And then in 2016, January, there was a kind of a one month crash, but really a sustained bear market. Is there an argument to be made that there could be some sort of almost irreversible shift? Like things will always go in cycles. There will always be boom and bust periods. But there are some things that are happening nowadays that are like just different, right? Like people are more used to the internet and more, I think, confident in internet based companies today than they were 10, 20 years ago. Uh, it's easier for the average person to invest. Like so many more people are becoming angel investors today than were in the past. There's now like increasing crowdfunding limits. So you can crowdfund a startup like Sahil from Gumroad basically 
raise like five or six million dollars or something from just random people who weren't even like, I don't know, if this is, they're just putting in like five or ten bucks, you know, they're just like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll invest, who, who knows, you know, this sounds cool. Uh, like my mom asked me about investing in startups, you know, like she wasn't asking that <laughs> ten years ago. And so maybe to some degree, like just the number of people who are trying to get in at an early stage is just going to keep going up and up and up. And I don't know if the number of people creating startups is increasing at the same rate. I think there's two factors at play or multiple factors. One is you're right. The crowdfunding, even the Kickstarters, uh, you know, that whole ecosystem has allowed there to be way more products created. And you can say there are way more tabletop games because tabletop gaming is like one of the biggest Kickstarter uh, categories. I should know I've backed literally hundreds of them. Remember how we remember how we mocked me profusely last time about my Audible addiction, <laughs> how I have like 800 Audible books? You do not want to see, I believe it's 250, Kickstarters back. I do think crowdfunding with startups is going to do similar things. I do think there will be a pretty big failure here in the next six to 12 months. It'll either be an out and out scam or it'll be someone overrepresenting, or it'll just be something that fails big. And that happened with Kickstarter and Indiegogo and it kind of level set people's expectations. People backed off on things. There is a lot of growth happening now, but man, there is across the board because there's so much money. There's none of us are traveling. Most people are not eating out. None of us are taking vacations. We have money to put into other things. And so I'm in collectibles. And if you look at sports cards, you look at comic books, you look at art, it's all crazy. Like it's these things are up 35 to 50% over the past 12 months. You look at startups, similar, more money going in there. You look at crypto, Bitcoin from 8K to 56K or what, you know, a 60K in the past six to eight months. There's just a lot of money going in. That is great for us in the short term. It's not sustainable in the long term, but there's secular trends and there's uh, cyclical and secular short term and cyclical are these long term changes, right? That's the two things we're holding, holding intention is that crypto and collectibles and maybe money going into startups can't sustain itself like it is today. But to your point, there are a lot more people coming in with crowdfunding and, and the accreditation laws are hopefully going to be changing, you know, to where more people can be accredited. It's not just a revenue-based thing. It's a, you can take a test, right, and become accredited. Or to raise a fund, when we raised Tiny Seed Fund 2, one of the biggest limiting factors, we could have raised a lot more money than 27.7, but we could only have 99 investors. That was our limit. And that's what kept us from raising 40, 50 million. We had to turn a bunch of people. There were people who said, I want to write you a $100,000 check, $150,000 check that we had to turn away because if you just do the math, 100 people, 27.7 million is $277,000 minimum. Our minimum was not that high. But that's the kind of thinking. You're going to raise a $50 million fund from 99 people, 500K a piece, right? So we are actually, we started, we got in touch with a, a nonprofit, and it's an entrepreneurial organization. And we have had phone calls with the SEC to try to change this. <laughs> SEC has told us you have to lobby Congress or you have to get like, this is a law. Like you literally need an act of Congress to fix this. And we're like, ah, we thought the SEC could do it. So now they're like, we're getting in touch with someone on the Hill and we're going to try to be, we, we, we've gathered a group of, um, you know, general partners of, of funds also think that the 99 investor limit is a problem, you know, and it's keeping folks from being able to invest. So we're hoping to change that over the few years too. Yeah. A ton of this stuff, the crowdfunding limit got raised. Uh, the sort of rules for becoming an accredited investor, as you mentioned, are sort of getting lax, and also these other limits, which just is going to mean more and more people being able to invest. And typically people think about, okay, what can I invest in? Like the stock market. But now it's like, okay, well, crypto as well. And also like maybe angel investing into startups. And so 
it's crazy to me that there's so much money going in and there's just so many different things you can do. You know, you don't have to necessarily create a SaaS business and do the sort of tried and true thing that you and I have been talking about for years. You can maybe make a tabletop game and put it on Kickstarter. You can make some sort of crazy crypto thing. You could start a newsletter, right? I bet you, you know, a couple of years from now, people will be raising lots of money to build newsletter companies. Whereas today, like, that's not really a thing that people do. It's kind of this individualistic pursuit. And so I'm optimistic. I just like seeing things moving and shaking and things changing up. And I spent a lot of time thinking about what I would be doing if I wasn't doing indie hackers. You know, would I do another startup? Would I do some sort of unicorn targeted thing? You know, would I do like some just random side project? Would I write, you know? Uh, and there's just like a million things you can do now that like you couldn't have done 10 years ago because the market just wasn't there. There weren't enough people consuming it. It would have been much harder. You see a lot of companies. Obviously, you just raised like a $30 million fund. So you've got to invest that in a lot more companies. What do you think indie hackers should be thinking about? You know, what are you interested in? What are some of the trends and, and spaces that are sort of up and coming that you think people can basically build successful businesses in? Anything that enables remote work is big. Remote work is not going away and it's only going to be more adapted. The creator space and the maker space, like you're saying, newsletters, I mean, these things are all on, on our radar. And the third space isn't just one space, but there's almost this refresh in a bunch of different verticals that happens every so many years. So like Constant Contact started in 1999-2000 and then MailChimp came in 2009 and it's like we're the new their new interface a new approach and then you saw Drip and ConvertKit come in like 20 where were we like right. 13, 14, 15. And it's like refreshing. So these big, and now you see like Savvy Cal, right? With Derek Reimer is like Calendly came five, 10 years ago. And then Transistor replacing the older podcast hosting companies. Yep. Transistor and Castos, right? Replacing with Lib Libsyn, I think is a big one. I, I think there are a lot of spaces that are ripe for a refresh, if that makes sense. And, and it takes, here's the thing, like, you know, I always talk about the stair-step approach. And if you're, if it's your very first app, don't go into these big competitive spaces with a hated, you know, a hated large competitor, because it's really hard. And usually you need to either raise some money or have some, uh, have a lot of experience or be a really good app maker. If it's your first time, pick a small idea. I would probably go into an app store uh, or, you know, a plugin repository because your distribution's taken care of. But if you are at that point where it's like, I'm going to really tackle something big and you do want to be, you know, in these ecosystems, I think looking at these large spaces where competitors are getting just a little crufty and frankly, a SaaS app that's maybe six, seven years old, it's a little crufty. They're usually a little crufty. Most are not maintained, you know, most are, you they just can't keep the UX and they can't keep the new paradigms because of just legacy gets almost built into them. Right. Yeah, there's a, uh, a sort of takeaway from the state of independent SaaS survey that you did for 2021. And you kind of talk about where people are getting their ideas from and then like the average sort of revenue based on where you source your ideas. And the highest category was I copied a competitor, which is shocking to me. I didn't expect that to be like that beat out. I pre-sold my product that beat out like I had, you know, I, I bought this company or I asked my audience what to do or I built in a prototype or MVP. Like the best way to sort of validate an idea <laughs> apparently is to just copy what's already working from the competition. It's <laughs> great. Yeah. I, I, so I would have expected I bought the product to kind of be number one and then copying being number two. Now, copy is a strong, I mean, that's the verbiage we used when I, if someone wants to copy, do I think that's a viable approach? Absolutely, I do. But I think you need one of two things or both to do that. One, just a straight copy makes no sense, right? Because everyone's going to keep using the one with the brand. So you have to either have some pretty like proprietary traffic channels, like you're really good at SEO, you know, or you're really good at integrations, or you have a network or an audience that you can use, or you can build in public, or you have 
a really unique feature or positioning. And that's, so you can take like MailChimp was, and it still is the number one email marketing in the world, right? By volume. And so when Drip was launching, we didn't just say, look, we're MailChimp clone. We said, we're MailChimp plus automation, right? We're MailChimp plus something they don't have that people were asking us for. Later on, of course, we position, that was our positioning. And then people were like, well, MailChimp's cheaper. And then we realized we want to position ourselves against the more expensive competitors, which were the Infusionsoft, HubSpot, and Marketo. And that's a lesson that I learned. But so you need one of those two things, just a copy. No, but a copy with, yeah, proprietary channel, you know, kind of a unique position that resonates with people. Very cool. Well, listen, Rob, it's been fun. I like these sort of casual chats. And I'd love it if you tell listeners where they can go to learn about what you're up to. Absolutely. Yeah, if folks want to listen to me talk about this kind of stuff every week for 35 minutes, that's startupsfortherestofus.com and uh, robwalling.com. If, you know, they want to keep up with me, I write essays now and again. And I guess Twitter, right? Yeah. At Rob Walling. Maybe that's a good one. All right. Thanks again, Rob. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, man.